Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Tonight, God once again has David give us God's method for leaving fear by looking at the facts and lifting our hearts to faith. Uh, You know, in that hymn, that well-known old hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, there's a lyrical phrase in there that says, When sorrows like sea billows roll. I think it's such a powerful sentiment that we resonate with um, because so often they do, don't they? Sorrows keep on coming. Uh, And um, if fear-inducing circumstances were something we would just face once in our life or infrequently, well, we'd likely have a single, concise, and clear-cut song uh, about how to deal with them. But the reason that we have so many of them here, I don't know how many out of Psalm uh, 59 Psalms have been, but I think it's the vast majority. The reason we've got so many uh, is because we have so many fear-inducing situations that we face. So many different ways or times that fear and sorrow can present themselves, and such was it in David's life. If you look at that superscript there, a tiny little, usually italicized part right before the main body of the psalm, it says, to the chief musician. So once again, we've come to know that means this is a song that was designed to be sung corporately in church. And um, then it says, Alta Skith. That means do not destroy. Probably the tune. And uh, we've seen that in the last three psalms, so all of them likely have the same tune. And then Mictum of David. Mictum is related to the Hebrew word for cover. And so far, all of these last three songs have um, had that kind of as their theme, asking God to protect and to cover David and God's people. And then it's of David. He's the human author that God inspired to write its every word. And then we get the historical context here. When Saul sent and they watched the house to kill him. That's a rather earlier uh, fear-inducing circumstance that David faced. It was uh, before he was king. That's when Saul was still king. And it was after David married Michael, Saul's daughter. And there came a time, it's, uh, it's listed out in 1 Samuel 19, when Saul sent his henchmen <laughs> to surround David's house. And as soon as he'd come out in the morning, they were going to kill him. So he had a whole group of assassins, and David was uh, trapped there in that house. Let's read Psalm 59 together, and then we'll pray and study it. Deliver me from mine enemies, O my God. Defend me from them that rise up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity, and save me from bloody men. For lo, they lie in wait for my soul. The mighty are gathered against me, not for my transgression, nor for my sin, O Lord, They run and prepare themselves without my fault. Awake to help me, and behold, thou therefore, O Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to visit all the heathen. Be not merciful to any wicked transgressors, Selah. They return at evening. They make a noise like a dog and go around about the city. Behold, they belch out with their mouth. Swords are in their lips. For who, say they, doth hear? But thou, O Lord, shall laugh at them. 
Thou shalt have all the heathen in derision. Because of his strength will I wait upon thee, for God is my defense. The God of my mercy shall prevent me. God shall let me see my desire upon mine enemies. Slay them not, lest my people forget. Scatter them by thy power, and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips, let them ever be taken in their pride. And for cursing and lying, which they speak. Consume them in wrath. Consume them, that they may not be. And let them know that God ruleth in Jacob unto the ends of the earth. Selah. And at even, let them return. Let them make a noise like a dog and go round about the city. Let them wander up and down for meat and grudge if they be not satisfied. But I will sing of thy power. Yea, I will sing aloud of thy mercy in the morning. For thou hast been my defense and refuge in the day of my trouble. Unto thee, O my strength, will I sing. For God is my defense and the God of my mercy. Before we study this, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, please um, be with us this evening uh, with your Holy Spirit, showing us the truth of your word. Uh, for those who are here tonight, for those who are watching on live stream, God, as we study verse by verse this song you've given us that once again teaches us how to move out of places of fear that aren't good for us, that aren't glorifying to you, and ascend to a place of faith that is good for us and glorifying to you. Lord, I pray that you would illuminate truths here about who you are, what you have done, what you promised to do, the facts that are so essential if we're going to leave fair and if we're going to rise to faith. I pray that as we leave tonight, we would make that trajectory a reality in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the first seven verses, we find David's cry for protection. In the first four verses, he's kind of focused more on his environment. We've already learned from the superscript the historical context that inspired this fear-inducing environment for David. It's one of being besieged, being surrounded. Uh, David's at home. He's at a place that should. It should be a place of safety. should be his castle. Uh, but Saul has assassins surrounding it now. He's hemmed in. He is trapped. And so in verses 1 and 2 here, David cries out in prayer to God for deliverance. In verse 1, the second half, it says, defend me from my enemies in the King James here. Um, literally, the, the word defend there isn't so much like a plea for legal representation. That might be what we think of defense. That idea is be my fortress, God, uh, or be my high place. It could even be like, Lord, extract me up out of this situation. And that would fit in with the deliver me at the beginning of verse 1 and the deliver me at the beginning of verse 2. And, um, you know, it's a good thing to pray when we're in a place of fear, that God would deliver us. I think it would be helpful for you and I to contrast what our prayers might be in similar situations with what David prays here for, because uh, his prayers here are, are one of, they're ones of total dependence. I mean, he's outright humility here. He's desperately calling on God for help because David's got no hope of helping himself. It's just him and his wife in the house, surrounded by uh, I don't know how many, but it's plural, uh, enemies uh, surrounded by assassins who, who they do not want uh, to wish him well. Uh, they want to kill him. And um, I wonder if my prayers like this in a similar situation are so few uh, because I don't quite have the same 
genuine, desperate humility uh, and dependence that David has here. I mean, most of us, we, most of us haven't faced this particular situation. Uh, still, we've faced fear-inducing circumstances, but uh, have we gotten to the place where we see like God as our only hope? That's what David is expressing here. Um, I mean, when I pray to God for deliverance from a situation like this, I, I do, I want his help, but I think a lot of times I don't have the same exact prayer of crying out, just God deliver me, I'm totally dependent on you, because I, I might be holding back some level of I'm going to do it myself too, or let me help you out, God, with this. Verse 3 gives us another explanation of David's environment. He says, for lo, they, they lie and wait for my soul. Um, and so further evidence of what the superscript has already said, David stuck and surrounded, and he's surrounded by what verses 1 and 2 describe as bloodthirsty men who have risen up against him. We already know that they're enemies from verse 1, they're plural, and so there are many. But in verse 3, what does he also say about them? They're, they're mighty. They're mighty. Um, it's just me and, me and my wife, and here's a whole group of people with ill intent toward me, and, and they're actually strong. They're the mighty who are gathered against me. And then verse 3 closes with a statement that's reiterated in verse 4. Uh, in, in verse 3, it says, "...not for my transgression, nor for my sin, O Lord." And then verse 4, he says, they run and prepare themselves without my fault. And so um, this is important for a couple of reasons. If what he was experiencing was his fault in some way, well, then what should be his response? It would be confession, right? Confession and repentance to God and, and maybe to anybody else that uh, he had sinned against. And then doing so might alleviate some of these aspects it does not really do us any good to say, God, deliver me if we're the cause of our own problem. I mean, God still can, but how he's probably going to deliver you is how he's told you to be delivered by confession and repentance. It's not David's case here. So here's another good, uh, important thing we can learn from this. Um, if we find ourselves in fear-inducing circumstances and we ask ourselves, have I caused this in any way? And then the answer is no, I haven't. Um, well, I think it's important that we consider that, um, look, God's people go through this kind of thing sometimes, don't they? <laughs> Even when, when it's not their fault. Even a man after God's own heart, uh, as God describes David, uh, he goes through things like this. When, man, I didn't do anything wrong, and they're trying, they're trying to kill me here. And let's look at David's enemies. Verse 5. It says, Thou therefore, O Lord, God of hosts, O God of Israel, awake to visit all the heathen. Be not merciful to any wicked transgressors, Selah. So in verses 1 through 4, it had some descriptions of his enemies, those that rise against me, and they're, they're uh, workers of iniquity, they're sinners and bloodthirsty men, they're many, they're mighty. But then verse 5 gives us an unusual description. What does it call them in verse 5? A heathen. The heathen. And so the reason this is unusual is that if we go to the historical context for this psalm, and it says it right there in the superscript, um, these individuals weren't what's typically referred to in the Old Testament as heathen. I mean, who was it? It was Saul and Saul's men. <laughs> so why does David use the term heathen? Why does God have David use the term heathen? When he's describing fellow, fellow Hebrews who are under the covenant uh, of grace of God, um, they were supposedly, supposedly followers of God, just like David was. Uh, in verse 5, David cries out for God to deliver him from these heathen. 
who are within the covenant community of God at the time. And so an important modern day parallel for us would be that these enemies were in the, they're in the church. They were in the church. And sadly, sometimes we find that to be the case, don't we? Be understandable if our enemies are outside of the church, but uh, it's important for us to realize that whether or not they're true followers of God, because that's unknown, by their sinful actions, at least, they're, they're acting like the heathen. They're acting like those outside of the covenant community. Um, they're acting like those who are without faith and without any kind of regard for God and God's word. And I don't know about you, I've been on the receiving end of this. I hope I've never been on the giving end of this. Um, but it's particularly painful. You know, maybe a little bit more fear-inducing when we find our enemies within our own community of faith, because it's not supposed to be that way. And I think God has David highlight this aspect, and I'm, I do here tonight as well, because there's a greater opportunity for our faith to be shaken and for fear to reign and for us to struggle to deal with fear if we don't recognize that this can be a, a reality in our lives at times. We see it in other places in Scripture, and here it is in Psalm 50. Nine. Now, in verse 5, there's an imprecatory phrase right at the end. Um, we don't have a psalm that's imprecatory like last week's where the whole thing is. But um, God's, God's having David call, out, call down judgment in a few places in this psalm. And the end of verse 5 is one of those. He says, uh, be not merciful to any wicked transgressors, Selah. And so... Um, now, that might be hard for us to deal with because, again, we're under uh, the New Testament age of grace, and we're supposed to, like we looked last week in Luke, where Jesus said, love your enemies and, and do good to those who, who um, harm you and despitefully use you. So would this contradict that? And uh, if we look at the word for merciful there, it's actually not the same word for mercy that we typically find in the Psalms. That word is chesed. It's actually a few other places here when it's talking about who God is and what David's asking for God. Uh, this one is, is kanan. Uh, and what it means is uh, favor. So what David is praying here, he's simply praying that God would not show favor or grace to those people who are trying to kill him. I don't think that's a bad thing to pray. Right? If somebody's trying to kill you, I think you are still uh, acting godly and Christ-like if you pray, God, please do not show favor to these people trying to kill me. And that's what David is doing right here. Verses 6 and 7 describe David, David's enemies who uh, he's crying out to God for deliverance from as vicious dogs. They return at evening. They make a noise like a dog. I'm barking, I suppose, or growling. And go around about the city, kind of like a prowling uh, dog waiting to attack. And, and in both verses here in 6 and 7, there's some phrases that uh, show us that, that at least the initial threat or how this all started was, was with sins of speech, things like slander and lying and deceit. When it says they make a noise like a dog and go round about the city, and behold, they belch out with their mouth. And swords are in their lips here. And so, um, you know what? There's a real threat to David's life. There are people outside of his house waiting for him to leave in the morning, ready to kill him. That's the real threat. But he shows us here where that real threat began at least in the initial part of it. It began with evil speech, with wicked words. And we got another reminder, as we've seen so many times in the Psalms, 
um, that we need to be careful about speech and that, you know, we might have said on the playground, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's not true. That's not true. Words uh, have the power of life and death, God tells us in Proverbs. And, and here David's uh, face in fear uh, because of what started out with words, and now it's manifested into actions of people actually trying to kill him. But now it gets to be the, the rising and trajectory part in verse 8. So um, now David's no longer crying for protection, but he's got a change of perspective here. This, we could say, would be the facts section, verses 8 through 15. And he changes his perspective to God's character, beginning in verse 8. No longer is David's focus on his dangerous environment or his dangerous enemies, but verse 8 begins with one of the most encouraging words in all of God's word. But, right? But God. But thou, O Lord, it says. And I don't know if you're like me. I can't help but read that without the song starting off in my head. But thou, O Lord. What an encouraging phrase. Verse 8 tells us about God laughing at their evil plans and actions against God's people. He does it in Psalm chapter 2. It says the Lord will laugh at them when, when mighty people here on the earth, when nations rise up against him, the Lord will hold them in derision. He'll laugh at them. And so the, the character quality of God that's being presented here is, is God's sovereignty. Um, these wicked people who are attacking David, they may be planning X. I mean, for David, they're planning to kill him. In your life, the ones you're facing, your enemies, they may be planning you fill in the blank. But God's got other plans. God's got other plans here. See, David had a promise, didn't he? Who's king right now in this song? Saul. But who is going to be king? David. God had promised he had been anointed. Now, he hasn't happened yet. So is David going to die tomorrow morning? God's promise is God's promise, isn't it? And that's what David's looking to here when he says that the Lord will, will laugh at them and, and their plans. I mean, that promised reality was still something future here. Saul might have had plans to kill him. Saul's bloodthirsty men might be outside. They might be, and they are, waiting to harm David. But, but what is stronger than Saul's plan or Saul's men? What's stronger? God's promise, isn't it? God's promise, his word is stronger. Who's stronger? Who's sovereign over David's life? The men outside or God? God, God is. The Lord, he says the Lord in, in verse 8, capital L-O-R-D. This is Yahweh. This is the one who is. No beginning and no end. All those men outside David's house, they had a beginning. They're going to have an end. David has a Lord. He's got Yahweh, the one who causes to be, the one who gave David life. The one who not just creates our life, but sustains our life. The one who's keeping David's heart beating. The one who's keeping all those guys outside. Their heart beating. And their breath in their lungs. So in the first, uh, you know, in the account in First uh, Samuel, in First Samuel 19, that this is based on, there's actually something that's kind of funny. It's got a really sad part, and it's got a funny part. But uh, So they're waiting outside of David's house here. And Michael, David's wife, Saul's uh, daughter, she helps David escape out the window in the middle of the night. And then, you know, morning comes, and they're waiting for David to, I don't know, go to work, go to play the harp in Saul's court. doesn't come out. doesn't come out. doesn't come out. So they get tired of, of waiting, and they bust in the door. They go up to the bedroom, and you know what they find there? No David. They do find, like, uh, this is the sad part. Uh, Michael had put uh, an idol in the bed, large idol, like human being sized. It's sad that she had that idol. But uh, she put it in the bed. And even made it look like there's a human being with hair there and everything. And, uh, I mean, it is kind of funny in the sense of 
of what, you know, when people see that. Uh, sometimes you'll see that on TV. I think I tried that once on my mom to make her think I was sleeping in bed when I was supposed to be and not, not playing video games or wherever I was at the time. And the Lord, will, the Lord will laugh at them. I mean, they've got plans, but God's got a plan too. And let me tell you whose plan is going to come through. When God says, David, you're going to be king, David really doesn't need to worry about assassins outside of his house. He doesn't. They're not going to kill him. Not before God's word, uh, God's promise comes to fruition. So why should David shift his focus and ascend out of fear and to faith? Because God is his strength, verse 9. Because of his strength, because of God's strength, I will wait upon thee, for God is my defense. Because of God's strength, not because of David's strength, he was strong, not because of his enemy's strength, because of God's strength. So David says, you know what, I'm going to wait on you. That's a good description of faith, isn't it? Waiting on God. But this actually, in King James, it says wait. So modern versions might have a different, um, a different word here because it, it's not uh, so much like this passive resignation here. It actually means watch. It's like a gatekeeper. Uh, somebody who would be like a night watchman when somebody would try, or the army might try to attack the city, they would alert everyone and, you know, be like a Paul Revere thing. The British are coming. That's what David says. I'm going, to, I'm going to watch Shamar to be a gatekeeper here. He says, because of God's strength, will I watch upon God? For God is my defense, or he's my fortress, my high place. David is saying, because of who God is, and that's one of the critical things, right? The facts that if we're going to get out of fear, we got to quit focusing on whatever's causing it. We need to focus on who God is. You can't hardly help think about who he is, and you're going to start thinking about what he's done, because what he's done always flows from who he is, and what he's promised to do for you. And that's what David's doing here. He's got this sovereign God, verse 8, who's his strength, verse 9, his defense or his fortress, and he's going to watch, not anymore at the plans of the enemy and the threats of the enemy. He's going to watch with expectation for God. This isn't a passive resignation. This is a very active waiting, an active expectation that what God said is going to happen is going to happen. Verse 10, the God of my mercy. Well, now this mercy is the normal word for mercy. This is steadfast love. God's loving kindness translated different ways, but it's his chesed. That love that God said he would give to his people. He'd graciously pour out on all those who would believe. And this is what verse 10 is telling us. The God of my mercy. I love that he, he says it's mine. It's not just that God is gracious. It's that it's my grace that God has given me. And so we've seen his sovereignty. We've seen his strength and his defense. But now David highlights his character quality of God's mercy. Chesed. The covenant love, the loving kindness, the steadfast, you can always bank on it, love of God. And it's graciously poured out on any who will trust him, who by faith will trust him alone. David says that it's this aspect of God's character, the main one that you and I actually know him by. It says, it shall prevent me. It shall prevent me. That's a weird King James kind of phrase for saying it's going to come and meet me. It's going to meet me. So David takes... God's grace, his chesed, his love, his mercy, and now he combines it with his other character quality of God, God's omnipresence. And it's not even that it will come to meet him in the sense that it had ever left him because it hadn't. It's just that now David is focused on what has always really been the case. God's grace didn't go anywhere in his life. He just was focused on the wrong thing. He wasn't focused on his God. 
wasn't focused on who God is and what God had done for him in the past and what God had promised. He was focused on, understandably, crazy people outside trying to kill him. He's shifting his focus here. And he's applying it to his current situation. David's desire, verse 10, God shall let me see my desire upon my enemies. It's to see a desire for God to deliver David, a desire for God's promise to occur, a desire for God's faithfulness to those who are his and rely on his grace alone to be vividly displayed in God's deliverance of David from this circumstance. He also changes his perspective to God's conduct. We know that God's conduct, his works, they always flow perfectly from his character. We can count on that who God is, who he's revealed himself to me in scripture, is who he has been and who he forever will be. We're just saying it. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. That's, that's God. And so David can count on this. Verse 11, he says, slay them not, God, lest my people forget. Scatter them by the power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. Now, in a lot of imprecatory songs, he's wanting them to be annihilated. God, kill them, put an end to them. Here he says, don't kill them, Lord. Slay them not. And he's got a purpose for this, lest my people forget, lest the people forget. You know what? Don't kill them, just scatter them. And so the prayer is, yes, that God puts an end to the threat, uh, that their power to harm would be removed by them being scattered. They're no longer outside his house. But also that they wouldn't be annihilated with, with this purpose, so that they would be a living testimony for everybody to see. That's when God delivered David. They're still here, but they're not. They didn't kill David. That's when God delivered David. People could continue to witness God's deliverance. Learn from who God is, what God's done, and what God has promised. So that other people in a similar circumstance, they would have a visual reminder, a visual reinforcement of what God had done for David and why they should choose faith over fear. Verses 12 and 13. For the sin of their mouth, the words of their lips... Let them even be taken in their pride. Again, that's where this all started. For cursing and lying which they speak. Now it says in verse 13, consume them in wrath. Consume them that they may not be. And let them know that God ruleth in Jacob unto the ends of the earth. Selah. So this doesn't necessarily show an elevation uh, in, in David's previous desire from verse 11. Don't slay him, God. Let everybody. When he says here, consume them in wrath and consume them, God, that they may not be. Uh, if you look, and at least in the King James Version here, sometimes you'll see things in italics. Those are words that aren't in the original text. Now, it doesn't mean that they're incorrect. It just means that um, the translators put them in there to help us make sense of what was trying to be taught. So literally it says here, consume in wrath, consume that they not that's all it says here. The only thing we can honestly be, be sure of is that uh, God inspires David to pray that they not. That they not what? Well, uh, the word is ayin, that they not. Ayin, it means to cease. God, I pray that they cease. Consume them that they cease. Well, it could be that he wants them annihilated. This could be an elevation that God inspired David. You know what? No, just annihilate them. But it would contradict verse 11. So um, it could be that God that they not have the power to harm anymore. He's already prayed for that. This could be another prayer for that. Uh, God, that they not have a heart that's set against you anymore. God, that, that heart of pride that sends wicked words out of their mouth. That heart of pride that uh, sends wicked actions from their hands. That, that it would not any longer be. 
I believe this understanding of take and consume, taken uh, in verse 12 and consume in verse 13 uh, correlates at least to verse 11 better, but also the second part of verse 13. Why does he pray this in verse 13? And let them know that God ruleth in Jacob unto the ends of the earth. All right, so once again, we're shown here uh, in imprecatory passages. It's never about vengeance on David's enemies, like his own personal vendetta. Why does God have David write imprecatory psalms and even verses like this? It's all about God's glory being magnified. You can see that in the end of verse 13, that, that they would know that God ruleth in Jacob. It's all about God's character and conduct being on full display for all to see. And, and so that people would turn in faith. That's the purpose of David's prayer here. It's the purpose of God's plan. Now, verses 14 and 15, they're kind of an interesting transition into the, like the, okay, now I'm, I'm in faith section, because it starts talking about dogs again. And like, well, David, you shifted your focus, didn't you? You shifted, why are you going back to, and at evening, let, let them return. Let them make a noise like a dog and go round about the city. Let them wander up and down for meat and grudge if they need be not satisfied. Uh, here in these two verses, after changing his perspective, he's been focusing on who God is and what God's done and what God's promised, God's character, God's conduct. David says this, let the dogs come. Let them come. Let them bark. Because he's done with fear. David's done with fear here. He's, what, what does he have to be afraid of? Yeah, there are threats. There's still assassins outside. Um, but what does he have to be afraid of? He's his enemies. Dave, does David still have enemies? Yeah. But who else does David have? He's got the Lord. But thou, O Lord, he's got God. But, but I have a sovereign God who is my strength, and he's my stronghold, and he's my steadfast love, my mercy. He's my shield. They might be present. The dogs are present. So are you, God. And their presence, this is what David's saying. Their presence isn't going to keep me in fear. And their presence isn't going to keep me from faith. And their presence isn't going to keep me from doing what faith does. Because what does faith do? Well, we find out in verses 16 and 17, we see David's confidence through praise. This is uh, the faith section here, uh, the hour of praise. But I will sing of thy power. I will sing aloud of thy mercy in the morning, for you've been my defense and refuge in the day of trouble. There is a lot of joy and hope and lessons in these two last verses. The first three words of verse 16 teach us something very important. They show us what faith is and what the praise that erupts out of faith is their choice, aren't they? What does David say there? But I will. I will. I will sing of their power. I'm not going to sing of my threat anymore. I did enough of that in verses 1 through 7. I'm not going to sing of the threat anymore. Uh, I'm not even going to sing of my need anymore. I'm going to sing of your power. God, I'm going to make this choice to sing of thy power. And when that becomes our focus, who God is, what God has done, what God's promised to do, when that becomes our fascination, well, the threats and, and even our needs, they all fall into their perfect place. That's why David's telling us to do this. Now, now check this out. When he says, I will sing of thy power, yeah, I will sing aloud of thy mercy in the morning. So when is David choosing to sing aloud of God's power and mercy, of God's covenant love that he's promised to David, always there for me to rely on your grace? When is he supposed to sing aloud of it? In the morning, right? So, I mean, we should get up and sing to God. It takes me a while to get my singing voice ready in the morning, right? I don't know about you. Um, so, yeah, it is talking about the time. There's no doubt about that. Um, 
But it's not just simply a suggestion. I think God tells us to do this here because you know what it is? It's a good reminder that there's going to be a morning, isn't it? I will sing. I will sing of your power in the morning. David's surrounded by assassins at night. But I'm going to sing of your power in the morning. There's going to be a morning. It's night. David's surrounded by assassins. But look at what he says there. He says, for thou hast been my defense and refuge in the day of trouble. So he's already looking back on what God has done in the past for David. He's delivered him many times before. The bear, the lion, Goliath. Big things up to this point in David's life. There'll be many more in the future. But I, I believe here he's doing what he often does in the Psalms and, and the faith part. He's already looking for the morning. That's what he's talking about. He's looking with confident faith, realizing that a promise act of God is as good as done. You have been my strength. You have been my defense and refuge in my day of trouble. It's not day. It's night. God's going to come through. There's going to be a morning. And David's going to praise God then and there in the morning. And, and so will you, because there's going to be a morning whenever we're going through anything. But also, please notice that the morning's not when the praise started, is it? He wasn't like, well, I'll praise you tomorrow when you actually do this for me. I mean, the praise started back in verse 8, for sure. May, I would even say verse 1, because he's praying to God, right? But um, definitely starting in verse 8, when he shifted his focus from fear and he, and he shifted it to the facts. That's when the praise started. And there's such power in praise. Verse 17, unto thee, O my strength, will I sing, for God is my defense. And the God of my mercy, there it is again, my mercy. We got three facts from the, the facts section back in verses 8 to 15. God's mercy, God's strength, and God is his defense. And they're repeated here in verse 17. Do you see how important the facts are if we're going to get out of fear and faith? Because now he repeats them in this place of faith here in verse 17. Facts have become faith. And faith has become praise. And when we sing of these facts, it helps faith displace fear out of our lives. It's powerful praise to God. It's a powerful praise that reinforces who God is and what God's done and what God's promised. So thankful for the songs we sing here at Dublin First Baptist Church that teach us. There's sermons before the sermon. There's sermons after the sermon. I'm thankful to God uh, for them. They're a powerful pointer to other people. Maybe here in our congregation, when they hear you sing, when they see you sing, knowing what you're going through, knowing that you're struggling with cancer, knowing that you got relationship struggles, family problems, financial problems, and when they see, when we see each other praise, it's a powerful pointer. When the unsaved see you praise. It's a powerful pointer to Jesus. And you can just hear David's confidence in God now through his praise here in verses 16 and 17. But this is the question. Can you hear that confidence in your own singing? Can, can others hear it? Can others hear your well-placed confidence through your praise? Maybe it's somebody who's still in the fear section. They're still in verses 1 to 7. We're all there. We've all been there. But maybe God's going to use your testimony of praise to, to point them how to get out of it. You know what? It's what David's done for 59 chapters, hasn't it? I mean, we're learning what David did. <laughs> we're learning from his mistakes. We're learning from his successes. We're learning over and over again how to get out of fear, how to ascend to faith. I'm thankful that David's given us them. But will you be a Psalm 59 to someone? Will you be a Psalm 1 to 59 to someone who needs to learn this? So I'm going to ask the praise team to come up. We don't